0: All right, let's pray. Uh, Lord God, we do pray that you would grant us wisdom from above. Uh, Lord, we um, yeah, we know that as we open your Word, uh, that you speak to us and you apply these words to our heart through your Holy Spirit, Um, and you work in us uh, grace and um, grace that makes us more like Christ. Um, who is uh, wisdom from above. He has become uh, for us righteousness and wisdom and redemption from God. Uh, so Lord, we pray um, as we read your word this morning that you would uh, open it up to us, that you would help us to uh, learn and understand and uh, that we would uh, live out your truth uh, and your gospel throughout the week. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. All right, well, I'll start by reading uh, Acts, the the passage from Acts 23 and 24. Um, And we're going to start in verse 12 of Acts 23, as Peter said. When it was day, the Jews made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink until they had killed Paul. There were more than 40 who made this conspiracy. Paul called one of the centurions and said take this man to the tribune for he has something to tell him so he took him and brought him to the tribune and said Paul the prisoner called me and asked me to bring this young man to you as he has something to say to you the tribune took him by the hand and going aside asked him privately what is it that you have to tell me and he said the Jews have agreed to ask you to bring Paul down to the council tomorrow as though they were going to inquire somewhat more closely about him but do not be persuaded by them For more than 40 of their men are lying in ambush for him who have bound themselves by an oath neither to eat nor drink till they have killed him. And now they are ready, waiting for your consent. So the tribune dismissed the young man, charging him, tell no one that you have informed me of these things. Then he called two of his centurions and said, get ready 200 soldiers with 70 horsemen and 200 spearmen to go as far as Caesarea in the third hour of the night also provide mounts for Paul to ride and bring him safely to Felix the governor. And he wrote a letter to this effect, Claudius Lysias to his excellency the governor Felix, greetings. This man was seized by the Jews and was about to be killed by them when I came upon them with the soldiers and rescued him, having learned that he was a Roman citizen. And desiring to know the charge for which they were accusing him, I brought him down to their council." I found that he was being accused about questions of their law, but charged with nothing deserving death or imprisonment. And when it was disclosed to me that there would be a plot against the man, I sent him to you at once, ordering his accusers also to state before you what they have against him. So the soldiers, according to their instructions, took Paul and brought him by night to Antipatris. And the next day they returned to the barracks, the horsemen letting the horsemen go on with him. When they had come to Caesarea and delivered the letter to the governor, they presented Paul also before him. On reading the letter, he asked what province he was from. And when he learned that he was from Cilicia, he said, I will give you a hearing when your accusers arrive. And he commanded him to be guarded in Herod's praetorium. And after, three, after five days, the high priest Ananias came down with some elders and a spokesman, one Tertullus. They laid before the governor their case against Paul, and when he had been summoned, Tertullus began to accuse him, saying, "'Since through you we enjoy much peace, and since by your foresight, most excellent Felix, reforms are being made for this nation in every way and everywhere we accept this with all gratitude. But to detain you no further, I beg you in your kindness to hear us briefly, for we have found this man a plague.'" one who stirs up riots among all the Jews throughout the world and is a ringleader of the sect of the Nazarenes. He even tried to profane the temple, but we seized him. By examining him yourself, you will be able to find out from him about everything of which we accuse him. The Jews also joined in the charge, affirming that all these things were so. And when the governor had nodded to him to speak, Paul replied, Paul replied, Knowing that for many years you have been a judge over this nation, I cheerfully make my defense. You can verify that it is not more than 12 days since I went up to worship in Jerusalem, and they did not find me disputing with anyone or stirring up a crowd, either in the temple or in the synagogues or in the city. Neither can they prove to you what they now bring up against me, But this I confess to you, that according to the way which they call a sect, I worship the God of our fathers, believing everything laid down by the law and written in the prophets, having a hope in God which these men themselves accept, that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. So I always take pains to have a clear conscience toward both God and man. Now after several years I came to bring alms to my nation and to present offerings While I was doing this, they found me purified in the temple, without any crowd or tumult, but some Jews from Asia, they ought to be here before you and make an accusation, should they have anything against me. Or else let these men themselves say what wrongdoing they found when I stood before the council. Other than this one thing that I cried out while standing among them, it it is with respect to the resurrection of the dead that I am on trial before you this day." But Felix, having a rather accurate knowledge of the way, put them off saying, When Lysias the Tribune comes down, I will will decide your case. Then he gave orders to the centurion that he should be kept in custody but have some liberty and that none of his friends should be prevented from attending to his needs. After some days, Felix came with his wife Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. And as he reasoned about righteousness and self-control and the coming judgment, Felix was alarmed and said, go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I'll summon you. At the same time, he hoped that money would be given to him by Paul. So he sent for him often and conversed with him. When two years had elapsed, Felix was succeeded by Porcius Festus and deciding to do the Jews a favor, Felix left Paul in prison. is a Christian who works as a nurse at her local retirement home. Each day she works with people who might not be all that far away from death and she knows that the only hope that we have in the face of death is the resurrection of Jesus. But her work policies forbid her from telling her patients the gospel as she longs to do each day. Phil and Sandra are Christians, but their kids have all grown up to reject the faith. And now, after a few heated discussions at family gatherings, Phil and Sandra have been strictly forbidden from speaking about God around their grandchildren. They're torn. They know their family need to hear the gospel, but they're worried that if they should so much as pray with their kids and grandchildren around, they might never see their grandkids again. Uh, Will's daughter, Jess, is only in grade five, but a few months ago she started asking him about things that shocked him already. Since then, the, re- the difficult conversations have become a regular expected occurrence, and Will is, fairly, Will is fairly confident that he's been answering the questions in a God-focused, age-appropriate way. But the sheer volume of things he has to address is already leaving him reeling, and it must only get worse from here. Sue and Ted believe the gospel, but as best as they can tell, it has very little to do with the fights that they're having on a daily basis. The gospel is just abstract theological truths about how God forgave them when they became Christians years ago. What can the work of Jesus do to prevent the divorce that they sense is coming? Kelly thought she was a good parent as her kids were growing up. They all knew Bible verses, they went to church each week, But at 16, Jed has come out as gay and seems to be rejecting scripture. Kelly knows there's just a couple of years before Jed leaves home and she doubts whether there is time to reaffirm gospel truth in Jed's life. And James is a youth leader who encourages teenagers to believe the gospel week by week. But alone late at night, after spending hours secretly gazing at pornography, he wonders if he really believes the gospel. I know that Jesus has paid for my sin, he thinks, but if I was really a Christian, surely God would have given me victory over this by now. The details of these stories are all made up. But they're based on common experiences that many Christians face. And each of these stories has this in common, that they beg the question, is God really at work to grow the gospel in my life? Or can my circumstances prevent that? Can God really work in these circumstances to grow the gospel in my life? When these circumstances Seem at face value to prevent that from happening. That very question is what this passage in Acts addresses. Uh, because in these chapters of Acts, Paul fi- found himself in circumstances that really should, at face value, have prevented the gospel from growing. And as we see, what we'll see in these chapters is that not only does God grow the gospel in spite of those situations, he grows the gospel through them. As we work through our passage, we're going to see four ways that he does that. The first one uh, is that God uses opposition to bring about his plan. Uh, We've picked up our story of Acts, we've been working our way through Acts, and we've picked up in chapter 23, verse 12. Uh, The story so far is that Paul has recently finished his third missionary journey through what we would now call Turkey and Greece, and having done that, he returned to Jerusalem. But almost as soon as he showed his face in Jerusalem, the Jews erupted in a raging riot. And the Romans had to arrest Paul to keep him from being murdered. Uh, twice Paul tried to peacefully address the crowd, uh, and both times he, all he succeeded in doing was making them more angry and bringing more danger on his life. Uh, verse 11 of chapter 23 is really important context for what we read in, what we have read in these chapters. The Lord Jesus told Paul, by night. Take courage, for as you have testified to the facts concerning me in Jerusalem, so you must testify also in Rome. These, this verse from this uh, instruction from the Lord Jesus lends a sense of urgency to the passage that follows. Jesus says, You must testify also in Rome. This is something that God himself thinks is important. It's necessary that Paul should get to Rome. Now we trust, of course, and Paul trusted that if God says it's necessary, then he will make the way for it to happen. But as we just read from chapter 23, it will hardly be a walk in the park. More than 40 of the Jews, as we read, made a plot and bound themselves by an oath, neither to eat nor drink till they had killed Paul. Uh, As we just read, they went on to conspire with the chief priests and elders to convince the Romans to bring Paul out into the open where they could assassinate him. And so we feel there's there's a tension here between the plan of God and the actions of his enemies. It makes me think of of when you're playing a sports game, uh, maybe a game of footy or something, and and as you prepare for the game, you know, you make a plan of how you're going to win. Maybe the coach and the captain sit down and they they formulate a plan and they maybe even have one of those whiteboards with the oval written, drawn on it and little X and arrows and things. But when you're actually playing, you constantly have to sort of rejig and adjust and, and try and work around the plan on on the fly to account for all of the actions that the other team are making all the their plays and it it kind of seems like that's going what's going on here we know that God has a plan but we wonder you know what what is he going to do to adjust his plan to accommodate these actions of the Jews and, and all these different things but that's not how God works is it as we see God is one step ahead Not not just one step ahead, God is always in control. But uh, verse 16 tells us, It just so happened that this son of Paul's sister heard of their ambush. Nothing just so happens in God's world. This is, of course, God's doing to foil the plan of the Jews. Uh, Paul's nephew told Paul, uh, Paul told the guard, and uh, the guard brought this nephew to the tribune, and the Tribune made his own counter plan, but of course, God is working the whole way through. Now, for the sake of time, I'm going to gloss over a little bit the rest of chapter 23. But uh, there is a really exciting story here to um, to read and and, um, and uh, yeah, to look through in your own time. It has action as these, these companies of infantry and cavalry suit up to uh, lead Paul out of the city. I think the, uh, it has a bit of humour as uh, the tribune Lysias in his letter to Felix, he sort of makes every effort to suck up to his boss and uh, even twist the facts to make his, his own actions look good. It has intrigue and suspense uh, as Paul's case is deferred at, on his arrival of, until the arrival of his accusers. But most importantly, and what I'm going to spend a few minutes talking about, it has a theological point to it, a lesson about God that we can learn. And the lesson, as I've said, is that God uses opposition to bring about his plan. Again, the first time you read this story, it kind of seems like things are going badly. That there's all these wrinkles that have to be overcome. But as you read it again with the end in mind, it becomes clear that the Jewish plot was in fact instrumental in God's plan. God didn't just foil the Jews' deadly plan, at the same time he used it to set his plan in motion to get Paul moving on his way from Jerusalem to Rome. Uh, God used the Romans in the story in the same way. Obviously, uh, they're not quite as openly antagonistic to Paul as the Jews were, but equally, you know, none of these Romans uh, 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 have any desire to get Paul to Rome. They're not wanting to help Paul evangelise the gospel uh, in Rome. Paul's arrest and imprisonment could, you know, be its own kind of wrinkle in God's plan, at least at face value again, because now he's in a Roman prison with no freedom to go anywhere. But again, this too is instrumental in God's plan. This is the way that God keeps Paul safe on his travel to Rome. Now this is instructive for us as well, because we find ourselves in situations of our own that should at face value Prevent the spread of the gospel just as uh, just like the ones I described at the start of the sermon but these situations are in fact part of God's plan to grow his kingdom this is how God characteristically works this is the greatness and genius of his gospel plan and that should give us peace uh, in our own lives it should help us not to worry in those situations about whether or not God can use, God can work his gospel purposes. We can rest in the knowledge that we are really just a pawn in God's plan. Just, even Paul in this chapter is a bit of a pawn. He really does very little in these, you know, 23, 12 to the end. God is the one acting behind the scenes, And Paul is just resting and trusting in God's great gospel plan as God uses opposition to bring about his plan. All right, so that's the first way that God uses circumstances to bring about his gospel purposes. The second thing, uh, as we see moving into chapter 24, is that God uses lies to bring out his truth. Uh, chapter 24 is the first of a series of Roman trials of Paul in Acts. This one is interesting because it is the one where the Jews present their case for themselves. Um, And what it boils down to is that Paul is a public nuisance, is what they're trying to claim. He causes riots everywhere he goes and he desecrated the temple. Is this true? No, of course not. Um, Paul lays out the facts of his own case and he's very clear that what they have against him is not true. It was just the Jews' accusation is a lie that they thought might have a decent chance of convincing the Romans to get rid of Paul. And the Jews hoped that by couching their accusations in in flattery of Felix and bravado of overstating their confidence in their case... They could somehow make these accusations stick. But the truth of God was not obscured by the Jews' lies, far from it. As I said, Paul was able to present the facts about his case. But more importantly, Paul also took the opportunity to testify to the truth, the core message of the gospel. Twice in his speech, in verses 15 and 21, Uh, Paul testified to the hope of resurrection. He says, I have a hope in God that there will be a resurrection of both the just and the unjust. And then later on, he again says, it is with regard to the resurrection of the dead that I'm on trial before you this day. The truth of the gospel, the hope of the resurrection, is that Jesus bodily rose from the dead in history. And that everybody will rise as well in the future to face judgment before him and receive either the reward of eternal life or the sentence of eternal death. What we see here then is God using the lies of the Jews to ironically give opportunity and credibility to the truth of his gospel. Again, the Jews' claims were were insubstantial and so when Paul opened his mouth to testify to the solid factual truths of God that truth was that much more real and solid by comparison Uh, it's like getting on a boat uh, if you've ever been on a like a small rickety boat rocking on the waves of the sea Uh, I've never been one to get particularly seasick I can kind of keep my feet on a boat but It's not natural to try and stand on a floor that's not still. It makes you dizzy. It makes you uncomfortable for many people. It makes you sick. And, yeah, maybe you get used to it, or some of you are going to even tell me that you like the feeling of being on a boat. But there's nothing like stepping off a boat onto dry land, having that confidence once more that the ground isn't going to shift beneath your feet. And the same is true here. Satan loves to deceive people. That's his characteristic MO. And so the world is full of lies. But the thing about lies is that they're insubstantial. If you push on them, they give way, like the sea. You can't stand on them and be stable. Now, for many people, it's all they've ever known. So they get used to it, learn to ride the waves, ignore the ground constantly shifting beneath them, But the truth, the the fact remains that these lies make you dizzy, uncomfortable, and sick. But to step onto the eternal, unchanging, solid rock of God's truth gives you confidence and stability and satisfaction of knowing that your life was made to know Him. That's why and how God uses lies to bring out his truth. And this is a comforting th- another comforting thought. It should give us confidence. I talked in the introduction about uh, people facing difficult questions. And we don't need to be afraid as Christians of difficult questions because God uses lies to bring out his truth. All truth is God's truth, so facts and logic and scrutiny will always come down on the side of righteousness. And more importantly, like Paul, we know that the central truth people need to hear is the gospel of Jesus. And so we can point people to the gospel as we answer difficult questions. So when your children or your grandchildren or your friends or co-workers ask you, do you think, say, gender is fixed or fluid? Well, you can point them to the facts of human biology and and that testifies to the truth. But also you can bring it back to the deeper question of who has the right to assign gender? Who is in charge of your identity and your life? And the gospel says, doesn't it, that if Jesus was raised from the dead, he is Lord of all. And therefore he sets the meaning of life and identity. Uh, or if people ask, you know, do you, do you think organisms evolve over time? Well, we can see from evidence that there are that there is evidence for minor adaptations, but no evidence for major evolution. Too. But the core issue is whether death is a natural part of life, a natural part of the universe that makes things grow and improve. Because the gospel teaches us that death is a consequence of human sin that God has overcome and will soon eradicate. Or maybe they might ask, do you think such and such should be cancelled and, and thrown out of public life because of what they said and did a decade ago? Well, again, you can look at the facts of the case, but more also and more importantly, you can talk about whether and how people can be forgiven for awful things that they might have done. As Christians we can speak with confidence, we can question with confidence, we can even be accused and questioned with confidence, not, question, not, not confidence that we're right on every point, not confidence that you'll always have all the answers, not confidence that people will accept the truth, but confidence that God's truth is clear and verifiable even and especially in the face of lies because God uses lies to bring out his truth. Thirdly, God uses imprisonment to bring people his word. Uh, At the end of Paul's trial, Felix was convinced that Paul wasn't guilty of any crimes against Rome. He'd heard as much from Lysias the Tribune uh, in the letter, and his trial of Paul had confirmed that too. But to sort of curry the favor of the Jews... Felix kept Paul in prison anyway. He sort of made up this excuse about how he needed to talk to Lysias again. Uh, Paul was treated relatively well in prison, as, a, uh, as, as uh, Felix in, it, um, commanded. Um, but he was in prison, removed of his freedom nonetheless. Uh, once again, though, even, this in, even though this imprisonment should have been an obstacle to God's plan... God used it to bring about the growth of his gospel. Uh, let's read verse 24. After some days, Felix came with his wife, Drusilla, who was Jewish, and he sent for Paul and heard him speak about faith in Christ Jesus. Paul, u- God, sorry, God used Paul's imprisonment to bring the gospel to Felix and Drusilla, who apparently had a decent intellectual understanding of Christianity, but had never really had the gospel confront them. Uh, once again, this is a good reminder for us. Um, as far as I'm aware, no one in this room has been uh, actually locked up in jail for preaching the gospel. Although that's not to say that won't happen in the future. But I think many of you can relate to being bound in the sense of not being free to share the gospel to people. Uh, maybe that's because of a work policy or uh, your family and friends r- r- not, uh, telling you n- not to talk about God. Uh, Or whatever the case may be, you feel bound and prevented from spreading the gospel among those people around you. But just as with Paul's imprisonment, God can use that situation to grow the gospel almost always in totally unexpected ways. Uh, perhaps you've heard about people in strict anti-Christian uh, countries who have been drawn to Christianity simply because it's forbidden. Uh, closer to home, I remember hearing uh, a few years ago about one of the Sydney universities prohibiting uh, Christ- the Christian group on campus uh, from speaking the gospel unprompted. So the group printed out these t-shirts that said, I'm a Christian, ask me how. Or well, something to those, some words to that effect. And apparently this resulted in unprecedented growth in their gospel reach on campus. Uh, At a more everyday level, I've heard countless stories of people who felt powerless to spread the gospel being asked by their their friends or co-workers or students or grandkids or whomever it may be uh, in occasions and times that they didn't expect. God uses imprisonment to bring about his word. To bring people his word. So don't give up. Be watchful and prayerful for situations where you can tell people the gospel. Be patient and persistent because God will bring those conversations in his timing. And be ready and urgent because those situations often come when you don't expect and you might not get another one. But again, as we see with Felix, just because you tell someone the gospel doesn't mean they'll respond. Uh, Paul preached the gospel to Felix in verse 25, uh, and he applied the gospel's demands directly to Felix's pet sins. Uh, Paul addressed the issue of righteousness or justice, since, as we've seen, Felix is hardly a man who upholds justice. Uh, He addressed the issue of self-control. Both uh, Felix and Drusilla were notoriously sexually uninhibited. And Paul uh, then preached about the, uh, about the coming judgment, how God would call them to account for their sin. And Felix Goddard, verse 25 tells us, he was alarmed, he was convicted, he was afraid. But instead of responding with repentance and faith, look at what he says. Go away for the present. When I get an opportunity, I will summon you. Now's not a good time. Let's, let's, let's talk about this again later now to his credit he did talk about it again later he sent for him often according to verse 26 but Felix didn't respond with faith as far as we know Felix died in his sin and he will face the judgment that Paul warned him about some of you today may be like Felix Felix You come here and you hear the gospel again and again and you've hardened your heart to the conviction of God's word, numbing yourself by repeat exposure. I must warn you that that is a dangerous path. Jesus said, everyone to whom much was given, much will be required and from him to whom they entrusted much, they will demand the more. This is in the context of a parable where uh, he uh, he's talking about um, the servants. Um, someone who makes a mistake on their first day of work, you would need to address that, of course. But the more times they make the same mistake, even after you explain it more carefully to them, over and over again, if that continues on and on and on, the consequences and repercussions are going to get more severe each time. If you've been coming here for any length of time, then much of God's truth has been given to you. And God expects a commensurate response. If you persist in rejecting that truth, beware. God will judge you for each and every time you heard the gospel and failed to respond in faith and repentance. If you are here today and you aren't sure if you're right with God, now is the time to believe in Jesus. He's the Savior who saves us from the judgment to come because he bore that judgment in himself and died to endure the punishment that we deserve. He is the resurrected Lord who makes us righteous and will raise us up to eternal life. You can either be judged for what you have done or rewarded for what he has done. Don't follow in Felix's footsteps. Believe in Jesus today. Well, this takes us to the end of our passage this week, but I want to take a few minutes to press the logic of this passage a bit deeper as well. Uh, We've been talking about different ways that God uses the sinful actions of people, things that, that should at face value prevent the gospel from going out, how God uses those as part of his plan to grow his kingdom. And thus far we've been talking about external situations, external sins. But what if the sins are my own? What if the impediment to the gospel is not so much or not just outside of me? but inside me? What if I've done things uh, around my non-Christian friends that aren't befitting of a Christian? And what if they don't believe the gospel because of my actions? What if my impatience with my kids is what causes them to reject the gospel? What if my own sinful patterns uh, or habits or addictions are stopping the gospel from taking effect in my life? What if my sin is preventing the growth of the gospel? Well, then we need the assurance that, fourthly, God uses sinners to bring forth his kingdom. And we see that in the life of the Apostle Paul. Uh, If you cast your mind back um, to earlier in the book of Acts, it's been a while since we uh, were first introduced to uh, to Paul, but you remember, you, might, you will hopefully remember that the main obstacle, the original obstacle in Paul's gospel ministry was not his circumstances but his own self. Remember that the first time we are introduced to Paul in Acts, he was supporting the martyrdom of Stephen. The next time we saw Paul, he was chasing down Christians to kill them and imprison, men, imprison them. Jesus saved Paul when he was on his way to hunt down Christians in Damascus. And so the story of Paul is not simply a story of how God overcame opposition and obstacles to build his kingdom through Paul. The story of Paul is mainly, primarily a story of how God took a sinful, violent, arrogant, self-righteous man and redeemed him, transformed him, and used him to build his kingdom. This is how Paul describes his own life. I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the people of God. But by the grace of God, I am what I am. And his grace towards me was not in vain. Uh, Elsewhere he says, formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor and insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief and the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners of whom I am the foremost. But I received mercy for this reason that in me as the foremost Jesus Christ might display his perfect patience as an example to those who were to believe in him for eternal life. Just as God uses external opposition to bring about his plan, just as God uses the lies of the world to bring out his truth, just as God uses the imprisonment of his people to bring his word to people who would have never heard it otherwise, just as God uses all these things to bring about his plan, His gospel-growing plan, so too he uses sinners to bring forth his kingdom. And he doesn't do it any other way. This means we need to come back again and again to the Cross of Jesus. The death of Jesus is what takes our sins away. It is what has redeemed us and saved us from our sin. His grace covers all your sins, not just in a past sense or an abstract theological sense or a, just a ticket to heaven sense, but in a very real and present sense. His grace covers your sins today. No sin you can do is big enough. To overcome God's grace. No sin you can do is big enough to prevent the grace of God from working in your spouse. No sin you can do is big enough to prevent the grace of God from working in your kids. No sin you can do is big enough to prevent the grace of God from working in your friends. No sin you can do is big enough to prevent the grace of God from working in yourself. And this should liberate us from the fear and guilt and regret that paralyzes us from preaching the gospel to those around us. Instead, we can acknowledge our sin and glorify the grace of God. Look, this is what I've done, and I regret it, and I'm sorry. But look at what the grace of God has done in me, despite my sin. We say to people, believe in Jesus Because His grace can do the same for you. And this should give us confidence, like Paul said in 1 Corinthians 15: By the grace of God, I am what I am, and His grace towards me was not in vain. God's grace towards us is never in vain. That is the truth. God uses sinners to bring about his kingdom. God uses imprisonment to bring people his word. God uses lies to bring out his truth. He uses opposition to bring about his plan. He does that, not because he delights in sin or lies or imprisonment, but because doing that shows the greatness and genius of his gospel plan. It brings glory to his grace. Let's pray. Lord God, we are humbled as we read your word this morning. We acknowledge that our lives are full of sin, uh, our own sin, Um, The sin of those around us. And Lord, we uh, look at the, the messiness of sin. And we wonder how you can overcome that. Lord, give us faith. Give us trust in your power and in your grace. That not only do you overcome the things that should, at face value, prevent your gospel from growing. Lord, but you use those things to bring about your plan. We pray that you would use us this week to bring your word to those who would not otherwise hear it and to bring your word to those who would hear it and to bring your word into our own hearts and lives so that we and others might follow you more and more. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.